In this class, we're going to talk about preoperative management of the ostomy patient. We're going to focus specifically on pre-op education and stomacite marking. Specific objectives, identify goals of preoperative teaching for the patient undergoing ostomy surgery, discuss the importance of pre-op stomacite marking. We are going to describe the procedure for stomacite marking, but at the end of this, we want you to be able to actually do it, and we will have you practice that when you come on site for Bridge Week. And then we'll talk about select challenges in performing stomacite marking and potential modifications. So let's talk about pre-op teaching. Our goals are to assure informed consent. And what does that mean? We wanna make sure the patient understands what's going to be done surgically. We want to specifically assure that they understand that they may come out of surgery with an ostomy. Now, we are gonna be talking to patients who are very likely to have an ostomy, but we'll also be talking to patients who are very unlikely to have an ostomy. We want them to know exactly what to expect. So if you're very unlikely to have an ostomy, I want you to know that, but I want you to be very clear that it's a possibility. If you're extremely likely to have an ostomy, I want you to know that and to start preparing yourself for this change. We want to provide a basic understanding to this individual about what ostomy management involves. We want to talk about emptying. We want to talk about the pouch change procedure and frequency. I want to answer any questions that they have at this point. And the other thing I want to accomplish during a pre-op teaching session, I want to begin to establish rapport with that patient, with that family, so that they, comfortable, they feel comfortable working with me and my team post-operatively. At this point in time, we all have a huge challenge in making sure that patients get pre-op teaching and stomacite marking. <clears throat> Most of our patients are AM admits. So we have to work within whatever system we're in. We have to work with the pre-admit team, with the surgical team to figure out how are we going to make this happen? When am I going to see this patient? Does the patient come in for a pre-admit visit? Could I see them in the pre-admit area? Or do I need to see them in the pre-op holding area the morning of surgery? So preoperative teaching doesn't have to be extensive, but needs to cover some basic essentials. If the patient's having a fecal diversion, let's say they're having an ileostomy, I want them to understand that they haven't lost the ability to digest and absorb nutrients, and that there will be very few changes in their diet, but that their stool will be much more liquid and that they will have to increase fluid intake because we will be removing or bypassing the colon. If I'm talking to a patient who's going to have a urinary diversion, I want to explain to them that the kidneys are not involved in this surgical procedure, so their ability to make urine, to eliminate waste is unaffected. 
that what will be affected is they won't be able to control urine elimination. They'll be wearing a pouch to collect the urine. I want to make sure the patient understands why they're having the procedure they're having. If they're having a urostomy because of bladder cancer, I want them to understand we have to remove the bladder to get the cancer. And as a result, we have to create another way for urine to be eliminated. Same thing, if they're having uh, ileostomy because of refractory inflammatory bowel disease, I want them to understand we're removing the colon because that's what's making them so sick. And that they will have an ileostomy, that their stool will be more fluid, that we will be compensating for that by increasing their fluid intake, but that we expect that their overall health status and quality of life will be markedly improved. The third bullet point, if this procedure is likely to alter sexual function, that becomes a critical element of informed consent. A couple of examples. If I have a male patient undergoing cystoprostatectomy for bladder cancer, along with ileal conduit construction, I want to make absolutely sure that he understands that removal of the prostate gland means loss of ejaculatory function. And if he's young and still interested in having children, then it would be really important for him to bank his sperm prior to surgery. If it's an older woman and she's having a pelvic exoneration because of bladder and urethral cancer, I want her to understand that she will probably have a partial or total vaginectomy and that there will definitely be an impact on sexual function that at least short term she'll be unable to have intercourse. So if there's no change in sexual function associated with the planned surgical procedure, then you can skip that. But if there is gonna be a change, it is part of informed consent. And finally, I wanna make sure they understand the basics of what the stoma looks like and how it works. I'll show them a picture. We routinely show them pictures of the stoma so they know that it's red and wet and protrudes. A very common comment from patients is, oh, that's not what I thought it would look like. I thought it was gonna be almost, I don't know, like a faucet, like something that would attach to the pouch. So they need to know that no, it's nothing mechanical. It's literally the bowel attached to their skin. This is what it looks like. It looks like it would be sore, it is not. The other thing I want them to know is that they will not be able to control when urine comes out, when stool comes out. That's another very common question. So then once they understand what's going to be done and why, once they understand that there's no voluntary control of stool elimination, of urine elimination, then I wanna go over with them the basics of ostomy management. So I wanna to say to them, when you have this, or if you have this, this is how you're going to manage. So I'm gonna show them some sample pouches. 
I'm going to show them how those pouches close and open. I'm going to show them how they attach to the skin. I'm going to explain to them that they will empty the pouches needed throughout the day because it's serving as a substitute rectum or a substitute bladder and that they will need to change the pouch once or twice a week. They'll need to actually take off the old pouch, clean their skin, put on a new pouch. And I will assure them that the ostomy nurse team will be working with them postoperatively to teach them all of these care procedures. I want to talk about impact on lifestyle. I want to ask them what questions they have. I want to make sure that they know that there will be restrictions on lifting to prevent hernia formation, that their surgeon will give them very specific guidelines about weight limits, how much they can lift, and the point in time postoperatively when those weight restrictions might be liberalized a little bit. Then I want to talk to them about adaptation. I want to acknowledge to them that this is a huge change, that it takes time to get used to this, that most people say the first three months are the most difficult and then it gets progressively better. I want to ask them what their concerns are and how they're feeling and what questions I can ask, answer for them. And again, I'm going to reassure them that we have a whole team working with them postoperatively. Now we're going to shift and talk about preoperative stomacyte marking. So when we talk about stomacyte marking, what we mean is that we're going to evaluate the patient's abdominal contours. We're going to determine the optimal location for an ostomy and then we're going to mark those sites. Essentially, we're providing input to the surgeon that says, if you can put it here, this would be the very best site. We are going to base that on thorough assessment of the patient's abdominal contours in different positions, and our goal is to give that patient a secure pouching system that promotes independence and self-care and resumption of usual activities. We have good data to back up the importance of preoperative stomacyte marking. We have studies that show that patients who do get marked preoperatively have better outcomes. They have lower incidence of peristomal complications. They have higher levels of independence and higher reported quality of life. We have recommendations from multiple groups, including the United Ostomy Association of America and the World Council of Interostomal Therapists, that stomacyte marking should be a component of care for every patient undergoing ostomy surgery. We have position statements that were co-written by the Wound Ostomy Continence Nurses Society and by the American Society for Colorectal Surgeons and by the American Neurological Association. And those position statements also support the importance of pre-op stomacyte marking. 
and look at the third point, who should do it? Ideally, either a certified ostomy nurse, a colorectal surgeon, or a urologist. In most practice settings, surgeons don't really have the time to come and evaluate the patient in multiple positions. So typically, it's the ostomy nurse who does pre-op stomacyte marking. So we've already said a lot of this. We've said that pre-op stomacyte marking involves assessment of the abdominal contours in multiple positions, lying, sitting, bending, twisting, standing, so that we can determine the best site in all positions. And when we talk about best site, we're meaning that we mean the site that supports pouch adherence and that supports self-care. Rationale is pretty clear. If we can select the best site when the patient's awake and alert, we can evaluate them in multiple positions. When you're on the operating room table, you're lying flat. It's very difficult to appreciate creases and folds, and you cannot determine the best site. Remember what we said in a previous class, pre-op stomacyte marking is the first step toward promoting positive outcomes for your ostomy patients by helping to assure a site that will provide secure pouching location. So what are the criteria for an optimal ostomy site? There's three major ones, and then uh, hopefully we can do this as well. Right now, one of the criteria is that the site should be located within the rectus muscle. So if you look at the illustration on top, you see the rectus muscle runs longitudinally from the xiphoid proximally to the symphysis distally and laterally from midclavicular line to midclavicular line, or from nipple line to nipple line. Now we have limited evidence that if we can bring the stoma through the rectus muscle, it reduces the risk of peristomal hernia formation. Peristomal hernia is the most common stomal complication long-term, and it's associated with a lot of morbidity. So we really want to prevent peristomal hernias if at all possible, and this is one strategy that may reduce the risk. So at this time, location within the rectus muscle is considered standard of care. Ideally, we want this site to be within the patient's visual field. If I can look down and see my stoma, it's much easier to get a good seal than if I had to do it looking in a mirror. Having said that, having the stoma within the patient's visual field is not the most important criterion. It's important, but it's not as important as it is to cite the stoma on a flat pouching surface. That's in bold for a reason. That is the number one criterion. The whole reason we're doing this is to give the surgeon input as to where he or she could locate the stoma where we are very likely to be able to get a good pouch seal. 
To get a good pouch seal, we need a flat pouching surface. So that is the most important consideration. Ideally, we will be able to avoid the belt line, but not always. Typically, it's the ostomy nurse who does pre-op stomacite marking. We usually do it in conjunction with pre-op teaching. Ideally, we sit down with the patient, possibly the family, review with them what's going to be done and why, the possibility or probability of a stoma. We review what a stoma looks like, how it works, how it's managed. We answer any questions and then we mark the stoma site. You should be aware that there are some state boards of nursing who state that stoma site marking constitutes surgical site selection, which of course is a physician responsibility. We are not doing that. What we are doing is we're providing input to the surgeon about the best site for the stoma from the perspective of pouch adherence. So if you're in a state where there's any question where the State Board of Nursing has raised this issue, I would suggest changing your terminology and using the term pouch site recommendation as opposed to stoma site recommendation. And just so you know, the Woundosomy Continence Nurses Society did seek input from the Joint Commission in response to these issues raised by some state boards of nursing. And the Joint Commission wrote back and clearly stated that stoma site marking is within the scope of practice for ostomy nurses and that it was designed to provide guidance to the surgeon on the best site for the stoma, which differs from the surgical site. We've already said this, but I'm gonna reinforce it. Final selection is always up to the surgeon. It's the surgeon who is in the abdomen and who can see what can be done intra-abdominally, who can determine, can I bring the bowel out at the recommended site? So it's always, in the end, the surgeon's decision. We provide input. And we also have to be aware that sometimes, even though we spent time with the patient selecting the best site and giving that input to the surgeon, sometimes they can't use it. They might be unable to use the site because of anatomic issues such as a short mesentery. So as you may already know, individuals ha who have an obese abdomen also have fat deposits on the mesentery. And fat deposits on the mesentery make the mesentery much less mobile. Remember, the bowel is attached to the mesentery, the mesentery is attached to the posterior abdominal wall. You can't take the bowel anywhere the mesentery doesn't want to go. So sometimes the surgeon will say, I really tried to bring the bowel out where you wanted it, I couldn't. And if you look at the illustration in the mid portion of your screen, you see a patient with a very obese abdomen. This is my patient. You see the X, that's where we marked the site. But 
as you can see, that's not where the surgeon was able to construct the stoma because the patient had a very short, thick mesentery and the surgeon was unable to mobilize the bowel sufficiently to bring it out where we wanted it. <clears throat> so we ended up with a different site. No one's fault. It was just an anatomical variation that made it impossible for the surgeon to bring the stoma out where we wanted it. The other thing that may happen because of anatomic variations is if you have a very thick abdominal wall because of abdominal obesity, it may be impossible to create a protruding stoma, a budded stoma. And you might end up with a stoma that's skin level and possibly you may end up with peristomal dimpling even at the time of surgery. We'll come back to that. The other thing I wanted to point out is that more and more surgeons are requesting options. They're asking ostomy nurses to mark more than one potential site, especially if they're going to be doing robotic surgery or laparoscopic surgery, because then they have to make multiple little incisions for the instruments. And if they have more options for the stoma site, it facilitates their surgical approach. So let's walk through the procedure. It's actually a very straightforward procedure, but you want to approach it very, um, with great seriousness. So even though it's not complicated, it's really important to get it right. You're going to tell the patient, I'm going to look at your abdomen. You and I together are going to make some decisions about the best place to put this and then I'm gonna make marks for your surgeon. What I need you to do is I need you to undo your pants and bring them down to here and I'll cover you up. Because I need to see your abdomen, I don't want any artificial folds. I wanna see where you have creases, where you don't have creases. Typically, we start with the patient supine and our first goal is to identify the borders of the rectus muscle. So we know it extends laterally to about the midclavicular line. The best way to find the borders of the muscle, and you can see from the slide, we've put arrows at the borders, uh, the lateral borders of the rectus. So if you can take your hand and put your fingers vertically, along the expected border. That's where you start. Fingers held vertically or placed vertically at the anticipated border. And then you ask the patient to either cough or to lift their head or lift their feet or lift their head and feet. Those maneuvers cause contraction of the rectus muscle and you should be able to feel, so I've got my finger here, you should be able to feel the edges of the muscle come up and down past your fingers. <clears throat> if it just feels like I'm on a hard contracting muscle, I'm not at the border. I need to move a little laterally, have them cough or lift again until I can feel the muscle come up, go down. Occasionally, you'll have a patient who's morbidly obese 
You'll be unable to palpate the borders of the rectus muscle, and you will have to use the midclavicular line, textbook nipple line, as the indicator. So then you're going to start the search for the best site within the quadrant that corresponds to the ostomy being planned. So this is the way it usually lines out. <clears throat> Most of the time, ileostomies and ileal conduits are constructed in the right lower quadrant because that's where the ileum ends. <clears throat> Descending sigmoid colostomy is usually on the left side, typically left lower quadrant, sometimes left upper quadrant. Transverse colon, as you see from the anatomic illustration on your slide, the transverse colon runs across the midline above the umbilicus. So transverse colostomies are marked in the upper quadrants. But what if I have a patient who's scheduled for an ileostomy, which is typically done in the right lower quadrant, but there's no good sight in the right lower quadrant. Either they have a lot of scar tissue or they have deep creases or folds, then I would not mark them there. I would mark them in another quadrant. Almost always, the surgeon will be able to mobilize the bowel sufficiently to bring the stoma out in a different quadrant. Here's the um, other thing is that a lot of times, as we've said, they will ask you if there's a good site in the right upper quadrant and the right lower quadrant, go on and mark both of them. One technique that a lot of ostomy nurses use to find um, a good site is they'll create an imaginary triangle. So if they're marking a site in the lower quadrant, They'll create an imaginary triangle running from the um, umbilicus to the iliac crest to the symphysis pubis. That's what you see on your slide. If you're marking in an upper quadrant, the borders of the triangle would be the umbilicus, the xiphoid process, and the bottom of the rib cage. So if that's helpful to you, create that imaginary triangle. You can even take your marking pen and draw out that triangle, then pick the center because that's usually a very good starting place and sometimes it's the very best site. And then what you're gonna do is you're gonna take either a barrier wafer for a two-piece system or some kind of circular disc so that you can determine on each potential site, does it give you enough of a pouching surface? Ideally, you'd like a three to four inch square um, for pouch adherence. So you're looking for a nice flat surface within the rectus muscle and hopefully within your preferred quadrant. So you've marked the edges of your rectus muscle, you've created your imaginary triangle, you have some little starting marks. And when you do your little starting marks, you can either make a small mark with a pen or you can take little stickers and just put the little stickers on your starting points. And then 
you're going to test each one of those sites. You're going to take your wafer or your circular disc. You're going to hold it over that site. You're going to see, okay, does this clear the umbilicus? Does it clear the waist crease? Does it clear all bony prominences? Does it clear any folds or creases or deep scars? That's your goal. Also remember to ask the patient, do they have any unique considerations? Like, is this a police officer who wears a belt and a holster? Is this a person who wears a utility belt for their job? So you ask them, do you wear anything around your waist that is critical that you have to wear for your job so that I can take that into consideration? Okay, so I have the borders to my rectus muscle. I've created my little triangles. I've picked my starting points, and now I've tested my points. Here's how I, here's how I test. So first I have the patient sitting, okay? How does this mark do with the patient sitting? It looks okay. Have the patient lean forward. Does anything change? Is there a deep crease that you didn't see before? What happens when they twist from side to side? What happens when they stand? Helpful to have them raise their leg, especially when you're evaluating sites in the lower quadrants. Once you think you've got the best site, then you wanna to say to the patient, can you see this mark? Can you see this mark? Can you see this one? Can you see this one? Now, most commonly, the patient will say, yes, he can see the mark in the right upper quadrant. He can see the mark in the left upper quadrant. No, he cannot see the marks on the lower quadrants. It doesn't mean you shouldn't use them, but it does give you additional information that if you select one of those sites, the patient's going to have to learn to do the pouching procedure using a mirror. We've talked about having the patient stand and raise their leg, but we didn't talk yet about bullet point two, and that is checking to make sure that the selected site is on the top aspect, the superior aspect of the abdominal fold. Now, part of that is putting it within their visual field. If it's on the underneath aspect of the abdominal fold, they're not gonna be able to see it. But also, if it's on the superior aspect of the abdominal fold, it's usually on a thinner aspect of the abdominal wall, so typically you get a better stoma if you can put it on the superior aspect. Be in their visual field, frequently a better stoma. And finally, look at the illustration on the bottom. Very helpful to actually hold the entire pouching system up to your proposed site to see, okay, where is the bottom of the pouch going to be? Where is it going to hit this patient? Is it right in the groin? Would it be better if you could move it up a little bit? Just take those things into consideration. Again, you're trying to come up with the best solution for this patient. And you're explaining to the patient the whole time. Okay, if we use this mark, you see how I'm holding the pouch up? The pouch is gonna end right here. So you could pretty easily tuck it into your underwear. Now, if we use this site, 
the pouch is going to end up down here. You might need to wear the pouch over your underwear. Do you have a preference? Now these are some things to think about with selected patient populations. First of all, if you have a patient who is morbidly obese and there's a panis. Remember what a panis is. It's really a double fold of abdominal tissue. So what you need to do is slide your hand under the panis so that you can see where it originates. And then be sure that you mark above that point so that you're never ever marking through a double fold of tissue. And as we've already said, almost always with your heavy patients, upper quadrants are a better choice. It's a thinner area, they can usually get a better stoma and it will be in the patient's visual field. What about patients who are wheelchair bound or patients who wear braces? If you have a patient who wears braces, leg braces, chest braces, abdominal braces, you want to evaluate them with the brace on and off because much of the time when they're awake, that brace will be in position. So I usually start with the brace off, do my initial mark with the brace off, see how that looks, and then put the brace on and see if there's any change. If I'm marking a patient who is in a wheelchair, I typically march, mark them in the chair because their seated posture in the wheelchair will be different than their seated posture on the edge of the bed or edge of the table. And then typically I will tie their gown up around them and have them transfer so I can see what happens to my sight during transfers. We don't see many patients undergoing continent diversions in 2021. We're seeing many fewer of these. But if you do have a patient scheduled for a continent diversion, you can typically mark the sites in the lower quadrants because what they're going to be doing is passing a catheter, usually not wearing a pouch. You do want to avoid deep creases. You want to make sure they can see the site. If they can't just look down and see it, they should be able to see it easily with a mirror. I still try really hard to get it on a flat surface because what if there's an issue and they need to wear a pouch? So if at all possible, I get it on a site where a pouch would be manageable. Occasionally you'll be asked to mark a patient who's going to have a pelvic exoneration, meaning that most of their pelvic organs are going to be removed because of extensive malignancy, they might require both fecal and urinary diversion. In that case, you begin with the concept that each site has to meet all established criteria. Each site should be within the rectus, should be on a flat pouching surface, should be within the patient's visual field if at all possible should clear the waistline, ideally clear the belt line. Now, many times that will give you mirror image stomacytes. 
So you should be aware that a lot of clinicians recommend citing the urinary stoma slightly higher than the fecal stoma to prevent any possible contamination. Some clinicians also point out that if you can put the two stomas in different horizontal planes, that would allow for the addition of a belt if the patient needed it. So take home messages. Each site has to meet the criteria. If possible, it's considered beneficial to site the stomas in different horizontal planes with the urinary being higher than the fecal. Now more and more I find that we get consulted for patients who are undergoing emergent surgery. Maybe they've perforated the bowel or they're right on the edge of perforation. So they're literally headed to surgery. Sometimes we're seeing these patients in the holding area, but the surgeon wants them marked. Now you have to realize that it's very difficult to get a really good location under these circumstances because almost always there's acute distension. So you're not going to see all the typical uh, creases, wrinkles, folds that you're trying to avoid. Also, most of the time the patient's in pain and cannot tolerate a lot of palpation, so I might not be able to feel the borders of the rectus muscle. So here are the guidelines. Instead of trying to palpate the borders of the rectus muscle in a patient who is in a lot of pain, use midclavicular line, textbook nipple line as your margin. Follow your usual guidelines. Do your triangle, pick the middle of the triangle. See if it clears the waistline. You will be able to tell what the waistline is. Ask the patient where they wear their belt. Try to avoid that if you can. Look for little stria, the little stretch marks that indicate that there's a crease there and avoid those. Raise the head of the bed if the patient can tolerate it to simulate sitting and do your best. All you can do is your best. Make sure it's within the rectus. Make sure it clears belt line. Make sure it clears waistline. Avoid bony prominences like the rib cage. Avoid obvious scars. And then postoperatively, when you're wondering, why did I put it here? Remind yourself, the patient was acutely distended in a lot of pain and you did your best. I'm just going to review one more time that there are surgical limitations. You might do a wonderful job in identifying the very best sites for the stoma and the surgeon may not be able to give you a good stoma in that site. We've talked about the fact that the mesentery is the root system for the bowel. It's attached to the bowel and the posterior abdominal wall. You cannot take the bowel anywhere the mesentery won't go. So the surgeon may find that she or he cannot mobilize the bowel enough to bring it out to your desired site. And so the stoma might end up being higher or lower than you want. 
finally, it may not protrude as much as you want it to. So especially when I'm dealing with a very heavy patient preoperatively, I'm gonna tell them, okay, we're picking what looks like the best sites. We're marking that for your surgeon, but you need to be aware that sometimes there are things that occur intraoperatively during the operation that change where the surgeon can make the stoma. So hopefully he or she will bring, be able to bring the bowel out where we've marked, but I can't guarantee that. It might be in a different site and we'll just do our best. We've also talked about the fact that the stoma may not protrude. So if you look at the illustration on top, remember that when the surgeon makes the stoma, he or she is feeding the bowel through the abdominal wall. Now you can see in that illustration how they've trimmed the mesentery away from the section of bowel that they're using to create the stomas. So they've tied off the mesenteric vessels and then trim the mesentery away because otherwise you're gonna get compression of the mesenteric vessels from the abdominal wall. The issue is that you can only trim so much mesentery, typically around three inches, without risking stomal ischemia. And if the abdominal wall is three inches or more, it's very common for the patient to come back from surgery with a skin level stoma or a retracted stoma with dimpling increasing. And again, that doesn't mean that somebody did a terrible job. It doesn't mean you've got a sloppy surgeon. It means that the abdominal wall was too thick to permit creation of a nice protruding stoma. So look at the bottom line. Sometimes a retracted stoma is inevitable and it's not anyone's fault. Okay, so I've done all of these things. I found the borders of my rectus muscle or I have used textbook nipple line. I've done my little triangles, picked sites in the middle of each triangle, and then I've evaluated each one. I've taken my wafer for my two-piece system or a circular disc. I've made sure that I'm clearing the waistline, that I'm clearing any bony prominences, that I'm avoiding any scars or creases or folds. I've had the patient twist and bend and stand and maybe lift their leg. And this is the best site. So now I'm ready to mark it. So we use an indelible marker to mark the site. If it's gonna be two to three days yet before the patient has surgery, I have two choices to preserve my site. I can either give the patient the marking pen and tell them to remark as indicated. I tell them every time you get out of the shower, check your sites. If the sites are fading, remark them. And if I have numbers to indicate preference, if this one's labeled number one, this one's labeled number two, I ask them to reinforce the numbers as well. 
The other option is to cover it with a transparent adhesive dressing. Um, and then the surgical team will remove the transparent adhesive dressing at the time of surgery. Notice, in the past, they used um, tattoos with sterile ink, so they drew up sterile methylene blue and injected it into the dermis, but that leaves a permanent mark and is no longer recommended. People also did scratches, but that is absolutely not recommended because it increases the risk of infection. So in summary, you want to make sure that any patient scheduled for surgery that might result in an ostomy gets pre-op teaching and stomacite marking. That is the critical first step in providing a palpable stoma and promoting patient adaptation. Pre-op teaching for, focuses on informed consent. Did you understand that they might need to do an ostomy? If they had to do an ostomy to give you the best outcomes, would you want that done? And finally, making sure that you have assessed the abdominal contours and marked the sites that would be most supportive of a secure pouching system. And that's it. Thank you.